He looks determined without being ruthless. Something heroic in his manner. There's a courage about him. Comes across so calm. Acts like he has a dream. Full of passion. You don't trust me, huh? Well, you know why. I do. We're not supposed to trust anyone in our profession anyway. Peace, peace, peace. This is Atan Thomas, and welcome to The Rematch. So I'm in junior high school, seventh grade, at Carver Middle School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I see a picture of John Carlos and Tommy Smith in one of my mother's books in her library. And I asked my mother, you know, what's going on here? Like, what's, what's happening here in this picture? And as my mom explained to me, and I read more and more, I was amazed at the courage and the bravery. I mean, we got to put this all into perspective here. This was long before Kaepernick or Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. And this was on the biggest stage on planet Earth at the height of segregation and Jim Crow and police dogs and, and water hoses and, you know, Edmund Pettus Bridge and civil rights. All that was going on while he made this statement. You know, he's like the ultimate symbol of strength and resistance. And so I started embodying the essence of John Carlos and Tommy Smith and, and their protests of saying, you know, I'm going to use this platform and say that this is not right. And that's what I started doing. I remember at my high school, Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, during the national anthem before our games, I began doing the Black Power Salute while we were all standing lined up. And um, I was a freshman then, uh, just getting there, and my coach, Nate Harris, told me to stop. And the principal pressured him to get me to stop as well. And I told them that I couldn't, that this is what I believed in. And it's funny because ever since I was a little kid, my mom would always say, my saying was, that's not fair. And that would be something that would get me riled up. So I'd be on the, on the playground and somebody would get, you know, little, remember the little graham crackers that you, you have to crack on the little line and somebody didn't get a full one. I'm like, wait, that's not fair. Why does he get this one and he doesn't get it? And I would be speaking up for other people that didn't have anything to do with me. And my mom would say, you know, why do you have to take it upon yourself to stand up for everything that you don't think is right? So this was just part of me when I was young. I mean, when I got older, I remember even getting in trouble sometimes when I would see somebody get bullied and I would stand up for them. I was like, wait a minute, that's not fair. You can't just take his lunch. You know what I mean? You can't just take his coat or anything like that. So, of course, you know, as you get older and you learn more and you start reading more and seeing different things in society, you see a whole lot of stuff that's not fair. So then when I got to Booker T. Washington High School, you know, I was on the platform playing varsity, you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm in this big stage and Booker T. was really like one of the, the main powerhouses in Tulsa. So I'm there. I'm this freshman, but I'm taking this stance. And the older guys were kind of checking me out like, you know, what's, what's this little young freshman? You know, what's up with him? You know, and I would tell them my reasons and tell them why we're not looked at as human beings. We're, we're valued because we're athletes. You know what I mean? They're cheering for. I was like repeating everything that John Carlos said. And that's really why the, the personal connection for me became so strong, because I had that picture on my wall from middle school to high school to college to now. You know, in my office right now, I have a picture of John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the 68 Olympics. So it was definitely an honor to have him 
as a guest, and I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. Now, this episode is a little bit longer than some of the other episodes, but John Carlos had so much he wanted to say. So we really wanted to give him that opportunity to not be censored, to not have to try to shorten his answers, but to just talk. It just humbles me so much, man, to think that you could be a part of something, man, that would be so inspiring to so many people. Just to think, you know, all the beaches of the world, man, God bring all these sandy beaches together and he reached down and pick up a grain of sand with your name on it and throw it on the table and say, you could do this. Wow. So I tell people that I was born June 5th, 1945, to be in Mexico City, October 16th, 1968. That was my mission in this life, is to make that statement and then be able to expound upon it to try and educate other people. The 1968 Olympics Black Power Salute was a political demonstration conducted by Dr. John Carlos and Tommy Smith during their medal ceremony in the 1968 Summer Olympics in the Olympic Stadium in Mexico City. After having won gold and bronze medals respectively in the 200-meter running event, they turned on the podium to face the American flag and to hear the national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. Each athlete raised a black-gloved fist and kept them raised until the anthem had finished. The event is regarded as one of the most overtly political statements in the history of the modern Olympic Games. The Olympic Games are one week old today, and yesterday, the sixth day, was the most dramatic so far. It started with the news that the Black Power disciples Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists, had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee. First, first of all, uh, most of what you said was propaganda relative to them telling the world they ran us and made us go home. Okay. Uh, you know, when they stated that we were going to have to leave Mexico City, uh, I had my visa, and I pulled out my visa and read the visa to them, and it stated that it had not breaking any laws of the country. I'm entitled to stay there for one full year. So when they told me that we had to leave the country, I told them, I said, well, my visa says that I haven't broken any laws and I can stay. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to go down to Acapulco and hang out for a while and then come back for the closing ceremony. But yet and still, they told the general populace that we were kicked out of Mexico City. Not true. Then they came back and they said that they had taken our medals, which they approached us again and said they were going to take our medals. And I stated to them that you didn't give me a medal. I earned this medal. You didn't knock on my door and say, hey, we have open slot. We want to put you on the team. By the grace of God, I qualified through the qualification. Right. I went to the Olympics. I had the process of elimination again. Once again, by the grace of God, I qualified to be on that victory stand. I earned that medal. It wasn't like they gave me a medal. Right. So for them to come and tell me they was going to take it, my statement to them at that time was the medal has no significant value to John Carlos. Mm-hmm. I said, but it might have every value to my kids. That's their medal. And if you anticipate taking this medal, bring the militia. So they, what they did, they backed off. But the media carried this for 48 years to intimidate young individuals to let them know if you step out of the line or if you choose to think for yourself, hey, we're going to punish you by taking your medal away. Right. So it's just falsities that they put on for 48 years to intimidate young minds to think that if you think anything for yourself, you will lose the Jew, the golden Jew, so to speak. Right, right. First of all, how are you doing, sir? Well, Thomas, I'm honored to be here today. I feel good. Uh, my wife tell me I look good, <laughs> and I hope I speak good. Oh, well, I definitely, definitely appreciate you coming to uh, to do this interview with the Players' Tribune. Let me ask you, what exactly led to that decision to make that statement at that moment on that stage in Mexico City? 
Well, I think it started a long time ago for me, you know, when I was a kid. Uh, things just didn't seem right. Uh, you know, race relations wasn't right. I noticed uh, various things that took place in terms of a double standard for people of color mm-hmm. in, the, in the United States, particularly for me as a kid growing up in New York on Lenox Avenue to see how one uh, transient or wino might be treated in terms of being black opposed to how a white individual that's transient, how they were treated in terms of how they moved them from the street. Right. Uh, I looked at it in terms of how King Kong, which was a bootleg look at that time, uh, uh, dissolved and in, in place of it became a thing called Heron that so many individual men, uh, went to this drug as escapism because they couldn't be the men that they needed to be or should be for their families because they couldn't find jobs or they couldn't be the breadwinner for their, their homes. Right. Um, so many kids was disillusioned about school. Uh, it was just a lack of food in people's houses. So these things uh, matriculated through my mind as a young individual. Mm-hmm. I grew with these things in, in, in life. And as I began to run track, I had an opportunity to go around the world to run track and see how the other cultures were living there, other ethnicities, how they were living, and the, the ills that they had. The ills that they had was not such as the ills that black people had in the greatest nation in the world, which is the United States. Mm -hmm. So uh, we decided that we want to make a statement uh, relative to the Vietnam War, relative to Muhammad Ali being stripped of his title, relative to poverty and stress and and, and the tyranny that was taking place in the United States amongst uh, minorities, blacks in particular. and we tried to educate as many young individuals as we possibly could, young athletes, as to why we felt it was necessary to possibly make an Olympic boycott uh, collectively. Um, but uh, many individuals grew up with the ideals of going to the Olympics as a young kid mm-hmm. and to win a gold medal, to have their 15 minutes in the sun. And here we come about to try and tell them that, hey, man, we would prefer you guys uh, to back up and give up that 15 minutes in the sun. And we trying to explain to them that it wasn't necessarily for them that we were asking them to do it, but it was for their kids and their kids' kids to make it a better life for them. Mm-hmm. Because the halls of justice moves at a very slow pace, slower than a snail's pace, in terms of having laws and, and, and views and visions uh, changed in terms of being more progressive for all people in this society. It was very difficult, as I said, for them to give up that opportunity. So the boycott fell through. But then when I got to Mexico City, I felt that I was disenchanted about the fact that the boycott had fallen through. And I wanted to make a statement. Uh, And I talked to Mr. Smith about it. He agreed that a statement needed to be made. From that point, uh, we started figuring out what we had in terms of material goods that we could bring, such as the scarf that Mr. Smith had on his neck for for, uh, the pride of black people, mm-hmm. uh, the beads that I had on my neck that stood for the lynching of black people throughout the South, mm-hmm. or the fact that we wore uh, shoeless socks out there to illustrate the poverty of blacks in the United States, in the South in particular, was going 10, 15 miles to and from school every day with no shoes. Right. Uh, also, I had my, my jacket unzipped. Uh, to be out of protocol, you might say, because I thought about my mom and dad as blue-collar workers in the United States that would seem like almost a forgotten man. Huh. Uh, and I wanted to acknowledge them on that victory stand as well. We uh, had the button on uh, or the badge 
the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And mm-hmm. basically, that was the whole umbrella for everything that we did. You know, they like to say it was a black power statement. Only black power was our black fannies running around the track. But we were more concerned about humanity for all races, blacks in particular, because we're black. We know our plight. We know what we've gone through. But we felt that other cultures and other ethnicities have gone through many changes as well. So it was a human rights issue that we was concerned about. We took the shoe out there to the victory stand because the Puma shoe at that particular time was the only shoe that gave minority kids an opportunity to get involved in athletics, and they didn't have to be a superstar to get the shoes. They Mm. just gave it to kids that wanted to participate. I grew up with Puma. I worked for Puma as a kid. I felt it was very necessary that we took the Puma shoe and put it in that victory stand as well. So whatever came about, good or bad, Puma was going to be a part of it. Right. So— that's why we felt it was necessary. Now, you say how and why that day. Uh, that's when God comes in mm-hmm. because God chose that day. God chose the three individuals that was involved in an activity. You know, this is the first time the Olympic Games was actually staged in a third world nation, mm-hmm. such as Mexico City and North America. Then you sit back and you say, well, why all the artifacts? Mm-hmm. Well, the artifacts was there primarily because this was the first time that the actual games was televised in Technicolor. Once again, it was the first time that the games had been televised universal around the world. So it was apropos that we did what we did at the time that we did it, not to disrespect the Olympic Committee or to disrespect the flag, but to put out there the emphasis that we had social issues in the United States that was affecting me as a black man, as a young black man, directly. And my thing was to give out a cry, but the cry had to be wide enough, long enough, high enough, low enough to reach the far ends of the earth to make everyone understand that we have these ills in society and it's our responsibility to step up and deal with it. Now, everybody was on one accord as far as the issues and the things that you all were protesting about. But how did it come about as what everybody else wanted to do? So each person did their own particular form of, of protest, or how did that how did that morph into existence? Well, what happened was we had a meeting. As I stated, and we tried to educate kids, but we couldn't get everyone to be on the same page with the the, the concept of a boycott. Right. So then I think when the meeting broke, everyone said, well, look, everybody will do their own thing. Whatever uh, statement that you want to make in the fashion in which you want to make it, you go about it. Mm-hmm. And that's how it came about in terms of people wearing black socks and so forth like that. A lot of people made uh, various statements. They were overshadowed by the tr- tremendous statement that uh, Dr. Smith and I made. Right, right. Now, were there any animosity that their statements were overshadowed or because I didn't, you know, a lot of people don't know about the other statements that are seen. They see, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but around the same time that George Foreman, after he won, he kind of brought out the, the, the flag. And that was kind of viewed as kind of going against what everybody else was, was trying to form. Do you no, know what I mean? You know, I, I applaud George Foreman. I applauded him then and I applaud him now for raising the American flag because George Foreman, although he's African descent, he was born in, here in America. As I was born here in America, we're mm-hmm. Americans. Uh, George Foreman is proud to be American. I'm proud to be American. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm ashamed of America because I felt that America could have done a far better job than it's done with its history and to this current day. They have to do better and give everyone a fair shot to be successful in this life. Right, right. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about was Peter Norman. 
Um, he, he, was, he was the white man in the, in the photo that many people don't really know about. But it's an amazing story. I mean, he was completely shunned on his return to Australia just for supporting uh, the stance that you and Tommy Smith took at, the, at a medal ceremony um, in the 68 Olympics. But he wore the human rights badge on his jacket, as, as both you and Tommy Smith did. And he was completely shunned by his country of Australia when he returned home. Tell me about your relationship with Peter Norman, because it grew from that point. And, well, you know, it, it, it was it was really amazing reading because a lot of people don't know this story. Right. Well, first of all, let me just start by saying Peter Norman is a courageous individual, probably one of the most courageous individuals that I've met in my life because he didn't even have to take part in anything whatsoever. And I think if we had put 10 million individuals out there, it would have only been one Peter Norman to say I have the gumption, I have the audacity to stand for equality. Right. I respect and always will admire Peter Norman. And I go so far as to say he's my brother. Mm-hmm. I will be willing to give my life for him. Mm-hmm. But here it is there. When you sit back and you think about why Peter Norman wasn't recognized, he wasn't recognized for the same reason that John Brown was never recognized. Mm-hmm. Because here's a white individual that says, man, I believe in equality. I believe in human rights. And I believe in so, so much to the point where I'm willing to put my life on the line. John Brown did the same thing that Peter Norman did. Mm. John Brown supported uh, Frederick Douglass as the abolitionist to free black people. Peter Norman basically was an abolitionist mm-hmm. in terms of trying to free black people or free the aboriginal people. So therefore, they don't want it to get out that here's a young white individual that believes in equality and justice for all individuals. And he's willing to sacrifice himself to help these individuals to rise in, in society and life. Mm-hmm. So right away, they wanted to take him and whitewash him and blot him out the picture. I never blotted him out. I talked about Peter Norman all the time. Tommy Smith never blocked him out. I talked about him all the time. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they start cutting him out of the picture. I don't control the picture. I don't control the media. Right. I don't control none of that uh, where they have the photos. That was something they were doing. And you sit back and you say to yourself, say, when last have you seen anything on TV relative to this great nation's history about John Brown doing anything? Right. It's parallel to what they did with Peter Norman. They just don't want the white society, young white kids, to wake up and realize that here are two white individuals, great individuals, that stood against the injustices of society. That's the bottom line as to why Peter Norman wasn't acknowledged in terms of who he was for what he stood for in that victory stand, Mm -hmm. nor did they appreciate what he stood for when he got home because he was concerned about blacks in America. He was offended by what he saw on TV, and he was even more offended by what he experienced live than in his own country. Right. You know, right. you have to take into account a lot of people don't realize that Australia back at that time was parallel to the attitude and views of South Africa. Right, right. So what was the type of reception that you got once you did come back to the States from both mainstream America and from the black community as a whole? Well, the black community as a whole, man, I would say 99.9% of them held us up in high esteem. Mm-hmm. They loved it, had much admiration and respect for who we were and the stance that we had taken. They felt that the courage that we exemplified at that time uh, represented all black people in terms of courage. Mm-hmm. Also, I would say that 0.1%, those are older individual blacks that might have been in the military that, you know, felt like we had set them back 100 years. You know, we set the black race back 100 years by doing what we, what we were doing. And those individuals, to me, were the ones that were so subservient uh, 
to the white society right. to the point where, oh, I'm I'm sorry, the master going to get mad at me because of what you did. Right. That was the attitude that they was putting off at that particular time. But I realized that that was ignorance, so I didn't get upset with that because I said, within ignorance, you have to have growth to come mm-hmm. out of your ignorance. So in time, a lot of people have become far more intelligent than <clears throat> what they were back in 68. Right. They were led by headlines in the paper, uh, commentators making statements, uh, uh, someone reading something over the news. Uh, for instance, uh, we had this uh, this young white reporter at that particular time uh, that called us black skin stormtroopers. Uh, uh, I think his name was uh, Brent Musburger. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to call me a black black skin stormtrooper, it should have been offensive to every American right. for the simple reason that he was calling Dr. Smith and I black skin stormtroopers relative to being black neo Nazis. Wow. So if he's going to call us neo Nazis and then America didn't raise Cain about that or be upset about that. That showed me that America had far greater racist attitudes at that particular time. It, it, it's interesting because that's the same thing that I see happening now with, with Colin Kaepernick and everything. You have different reporters like that saying, oh, you're anti-American or you're against the military and trying to make it seem like the, the, the everything that he's standing for is changing into something else. Is that why, number one, that you kind of go out of your way pretty much to support the Colin Kaepernicks and everybody who, who use their stance and everything like that because you can relate to it because kind of you went through a far worse but similar thing? No, the reason why I support them is simple, man. It's because they they're right. Mm. They're right and they're doing, they're right in, 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 in the meaning or the cause for them to step up and make a statement like that. Right. You know, it's not an easy thing to, to get up out of bed that morning and say, well, today is the day that I'm going to make a statement about uh, the unjust uh, situations in society. Mm-hmm. This young man studied. Obviously, he read about what we did 48 years ago, but I'm sure he read before what we did, you know, relative to what Nat Turner did or what right. Rosa Parks did or Harriet Tubman did or H. Rap Brown did or Martin Luther for King or Malcolm X, uh, you know, we have so many black individuals that was thirsting and questing for the same thing that Kaepernick is questing for, the same thing that John Collins quest for, and the same thing that those that will follow us down the line are questing for. And we all questing for an equal opportunity to be successful in this life. We're sick and tired of all the time. We menial crimes and we are gunned down by law enforcement. Right. Not to say that law enforcement is bad, but we think that law enforcement has some bad components. They have some fractures within the blue badge or the blue, the blue uniform And it's their responsibility to seek those individuals out and send them on their way. But you don't ridicule an individual because you you tell you, say, man, your leg is bleeding. Go get it checked out. You know, you should applaud that he told you your leg bleeding and go get it fixed up. Go get some iodine and put a Band-Aid on it. Right. Right. But isn't it interesting that the same issues that you all were fighting in in 68 and you were protesting, protesting about in 68, you know, we're still fighting pretty much the same issues in 2016. Well, we, we've been uh, fighting this long before 1968. Right. The same issues, you know, the same issues that Harry Belafonte fought for, the same issues Nat Turner fought for, uh, the same issues that Harriet Tubman 
created the Underground Railroad for, we're still fighting today. But with one exception, and that exception is there's a lot more people that's taking blinders off. There's a lot more people of color that's regaining courage. Right. There's a lot more people that's starting to understand. They're starting to educate themselves. And they're not only educating themselves, but they're starting to educate their young babies to make them have a true understanding as to what it means to be black right. and what you have to fight for as a young black individual to have equality in this society in which we live. Today, they're starting to realize that, man, you got to go beyond the fear. Mm -hmm. Don't think that Martin Luther King wasn't fearful mm -hmm. or Rosa Parks wasn't fearful or the little skinny dude Gandhi wasn't fearful <laughs> to make a statement. Mm -hmm. I said, we all have fear, but you have to go beyond fear to make the change in society, to make it a better life for your kids. I don't expect nothing to change in my lifetime. Right. But I guarantee you, by the time my kids get to be my age, it's going to be a lot better for them and their kids. See, the difference is this. 1968 was two individuals out there. But when you sit back and you think about two individuals, when I look over my shoulder, I think about Nat Turner. Mm -hmm. I think about Paul Robeson, Harriet Tubman, on down the line, eons of individuals that was before me. We were all horticulturists, mm -hmm. gardeners. You know, we tilled the earth, man. We watered it. We put seeds down. And what you see right now amongst these young individuals, that's the fruit of our labor. Right. To the point where they're breaking out all over. They're in the arts. They're in the athletics. They're in the literature. They are massive right now. Everyone is coming together in terms of saying, hey, man, we don't want it tomorrow. We don't want to wait anymore. Mm -hmm. We want it now. And we're going to push the pencil. And now you have to take into account, and I'll be done after this. But when you sit back and you think about what's happening right now, think about Derek Jeter. When Derek Jeter played baseball, he got a tremendous contract. Mm -hmm. But he did a tremendous job to earn that money. Mm -hmm. You think about Shaquille O'Neal, got a tremendous contract. But he earned the contract. He did his job. He won championships for him. That's from the agency or the, the owners of these various teams. Mm -hmm. They got theirs. But when you sit back and think about black people as a whole, the question is whether we got ours or whether those owners are interested in us getting ours. When I say ours, I'm not talking about the one individual. I'm talking about with Shaq's community where he grew up. Right. Or Derek Jeter's community where he grew up. Or John Collins' community where he grew up. Whether we getting ours. Now, here's the deal. Black athletes are starting to realize that, hey, man, I have a vested interest in all the kids that came through when I was coming through, all the kids that might come through after me. It's my responsibility to see that they have an even playing field. How do I get my boss and all the other bosses to sit down with the Congress or the Senate or, or the Supreme Court or whomever to say, hey, man, we really have to do this race relations deal to its highest level mm -hmm. to try and resolve these things. Why do we have to do it? Why are what's pushing the owners to go sit down with the Congress and the rest of these people to try and resolve this issue? It's because black people are starting to realize that we have the power to hold up the money train. If they shut down the NBA for a week, that's a tremendous amount of money lost. Right. No one wants to lose money. The players don't want to lose money. The owners don't want to lose money. So if you stop that money train 
everyone is a little more astute in terms of let's sit up and let's resolve these issues. Right. Because right. America is a capitalistic society. Mm -hmm. And you tell them that we're going to hold up the NFL for a week or two weeks or three weeks, they'll be at the table instantly. Right. To say, hey, man, we have to resolve these. You know, when you think about Sterling, when Sterling got up and made the statements regards to Magic Johnson and mm -hmm. so forth, when it got out, they told Mr. Sterling, say, you got to go. He said, I'm not going nowhere. I own this team. They said, oh, no, you got to go. What do you mean I have to go? Why I have to go? Because you about to hold up the money train. Right. Okay? Now, we're going to pay you handsomely for a team that was worth $400 million right. to give him $2 billion. Right. So, hey, man, it was worth to give you that $2 billion relative to the money that we stand to lose right. if we didn't let you go. So it gives black people the understanding that, hey, man, we ain't trying to stop society from flourishing economically, but we're going to use our economic power to make them come to the table to deal with these racial issues, to right. deal with police killing people for selling loose cigarettes or killing little black kids because they're in the park where they're supposed to be in the park with a cap gun. Right. Or a woman driving down the street and she gets stopped for a traffic citation. Next thing you know, she's dead hanging in jail. And then when it all the dust settles and you look up, no one is being prosecuted for it. Right. So they just died just for no reason whatsoever. No one's accused for doing it. Mm -hmm. But yet and still, if I walk across the street, I got a jaywalking ticket. Or if I go to court because I'm paying for this same jaywalking ticket, they don't have nowhere for me to park mm -hmm. but a meter. But I, when I get in the court, I can't leave the court to go pay the meter. So I pay one ticket here. I come back, I got a new ticket on my car. Mm -hmm. So this is the game that's being played. And we just tell them, say, hey, man, y'all got to change the game because we ain't going for it no more. Wow. Wow. You know, I, and I'm, I'm just going to ask you one more question, and I'll let you go. And thank you for, for taking the time to sit here and talk to the Players' Tribune. Um, why haven't they made a movie yet about y'all? I mean, I, I honestly, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a director, but somebody need to call Spike Lee or somebody to make a movie about John Carlos, Tommy Smith, everything that you said about Peter Norman, the 68 Olympics, everything leading up to. I mean, this would make a terrific movie that I think people need to see, and young people need to be able to be educated on this in the form of a movie, in my personal opinion. What do you think? Well, I think, first of all, economically, you know, when I sit back and I think about movies, I think about gross in terms of what individuals would make. It's a tremendous amount of money that would be made by this movie. Okay, mm -hmm. and the reason I say a tremendous amount because the movie is a universal movie. You can take this money movie in the Middle East where a lot of movies you can't take over there. Right. But you can take this movie around the globe. So that creates a tremendous amount of money. But then you say if it creates that much money, why haven't they grabbed this thing and put it on the big screen, as you said? Exactly. But the bottom line with it is it might be because this movie might be too educational for people of color to show our strength, to show our vision, to show our attitude, and to be able to really lay out in terms of what we're trying to expose to young black kids, just as, as uh, Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass you know, took a lot of pictures of himself. You know, and some people might have thought that Frederick Douglass was being vain because he had all these different parts of his of himself. But the portraits that he had wasn't to be braggadocious about himself. He wanted to let other black people know throughout the continent that, hey, man, you can be where I am. You can be who I am. You can speak your mind and you can raise yourself up from the poverty that they're trying to put you in, this bondage that they had you in. You can rise above that and be me. Look at me. Hey, here's a man that was a slave that broke from slavery and succeeded so highly in life. But yet and still, 
if he didn't have no social media back then. Right. Most papers wasn't pushing him back then right. until later on in life. So he had to have a mechanism to let people see him. And that mechanism to let people see today would be the movie industry. Right. It would hit so many people. But this is one reason why we have to drive diligently to deal with this race issue to get these things resolved to the point where they wouldn't feel threatened about making a movie such as that. Oh, well, I think it needs to happen soon. Okay, and one more question. I know I said last question, but one more question. What gave you the courage to be able to take all of this on? Because it's a tremendous, I mean, you had to have known the backlash that you was going to receive, you know, doing that on the big platform like the Olympics ceremony. You know what I mean? What gave you the courage to be able to do that? Well, I think it's three factors, man. I think the first factor is God. Because God gave me a vision when I was seven, eight years old and showed me in a form where everything that happened on that victory stand 15 years later happened in that vision. I woke up this particular morning, man, and I'm in the bed, I'm stretching, man, and and all of a sudden, man, my wall just lit up. I could see shit on the wall like a, a movie. And before I could even digest to find what was happening in the movie, I saw myself in the movie. And I saw myself in an in a, a area, and it was a box I was standing on. And everybody was out there. They were so excited. Like I always say, it was yippee kaye, and you know, it was just excitement. And it took a minute for it to dawn on me. They must be excited about something I did because I'm standing in this box, and there's nobody on the box but me. Mm-hmm. And like I always tell people, I was right-handed. I'm right-handed. I don't do nothing with my left hand. But in this vision, I went to raise my left hand. You know, as a kid, you know, when you go to wave, you're going to put your hand up as high as you can. And well, I went to raise my left hand, and just what you see in the demonstration, that's exactly where it frozen time in that vision because something happened, man, where the people just went from joy to anger. And the anger, when the anger came, it froze my hand in time. Well, I didn't raise it no higher than what you see in that picture. Mm-hmm. And... It shocked me that people could be that vicious because they started calling me names. They started throwing things at me. Someone was even spitting at me in this vision. And then later on that evening, we went to dinner. Every day we used to go to dinner about 5, 30, 6 o'clock. And my dad could see that I was traumatized about something. And he said, Johnny, what's the matter? I said, Daddy, I was in a movie. I was in a movie. He said, you was in a movie? I said, yeah, Daddy, I was in a movie. And he said, well, what happened? I said, Daddy, everybody was happy about something I did, and then they got mad at me, and they started throwing things at me and calling me names, spitting Mm -hmm. at me. And I remember my father brought me into his chest area, and he said to me, he hugged me, he said, Johnny, he said, nobody's going to bother you. He said, my job is to love you, protect you, feed you, house you, and see that you get a good education. Nobody's going to bother you. And I remember he leaned over my head, and he said to my mother, he said, Vi, it looked like God's got something special for this kid. We're going to have to wait and see. Fifteen years later, the exact same thing that happened on that wall happened out there that day, October 16th. So I tell people that I think that, you know, I was born June 5th, 1945, to be in Mexico City, October 16th, 1968. I think that was my mission in this life, is to make that statement and then be able to expound upon it to try and educate other people. Why he gave me that vision, why he chose me, I'll never know until I get before him and I can ask him. That's the first litmus test for me was to realize that I was going to be, like I used to say as a little kid, oh, I'm going to be rich and famous. I'm going to be rich and famous, you know. And and my brother said to me, he said, one day, man, he said, Johnny, you know, you're very, very famous. 
What happened to the rich? And I told him, I said, Andrew, you know, richness don't necessarily have to come in dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the richness that God gave me is within those individuals that have the money, would give all their money if they could have the spirit that I have and be the way I am. Right. I said, now, relative to why it was necessary, it was necessary because of the things that my father taught me about him being in the First World War as how it was for a black man to leave a poverty-stricken, racist America to go and fight for this system and then come home after you fight if you were so lucky and blessed to survive the war and come home and realize that you done stepped into a deeper puddle of racism. Right. That was why it was necessary to make that statement. The, the vision that I had in my dad giving me education about how it was in a, in a, a segregated war, segregated army. You know, give a soldier an opportunity, but have fear about giving him a gun. Well, why would you have fear about giving him a gun if you were doing the right thing to him all the time? Right. So these things are the things that circled around uh, in terms of why or how I got the strength. I think I got the strength based on my mom and my dad in terms of the values and the morals that they taught my brothers and sisters that I coming up. You know, like my old man taught us, whatever you do, don't you ever disrespect Tarnish or shame the family name. That was a very powerful lesson that we taught in our household. Right. So whatever I do, I try and do with some character behind it to be straight on and to be honest and be forthright. But don't be swaggering. Don't be you know, <laughs> backing away. And when you're fighting against the wrong system, there's no room for neutrality. Right. Either you're going to deal with it or you're going to turn and walk away from it. Exactly. And I think that's the way I've tried and carry myself all my life. When I was a kid, as I stated, you know, I was I was very blessed and fortunate because when I stated earlier about the heroin coming to the neighborhood, that heroin broke families up. And when I say families, I'm talking about a mother, a father, and four or five kids. Every kid in the block had three or four sisters and brothers. Uh, when the drugs came in, uh, fathers used this drug somewhat like Diana Ross did in Lady Sings the Blues, you know, when they came to us, they take this little package to help you forget, not knowing that if I take this package, I'm going to be hooked for the rest of my life. And so many of these men took this because they felt ashamed. I, I want to be the, the father in the house. I want to be the breadwinner in the house. I want to be the captain of the ship and lead my family through it. But Based on society, based on the racial issues that was taking place, they were never able to get a decent job. They couldn't get decent housing. They couldn't get <clears throat> their kids into the institution institution of education that they wanted, uh, the health care for their families. They didn't have these things. So they felt like, I'm a loser. Let me take this thing. Let me try and escape for a minute. And many of them never returned for 50, 60 years. They didn't return. When you see in the streets today, many of these young kids, a lot of them didn't have parents in their house, fathers in their house to help raise these kids and give them direction and guidance based on those drugs that was put on them. So when you sit back and think about that, I, as a young individual, began to realize that I was blessed truly blessed to have a mother and father in my house and look at my cabinets and see food or to see my mother get up on Saturday morning and cook breakfast for us, whereas a lot of my friends didn't have this. When I went to their house, I began to realize that they didn't have food in the cabinets. They had very little clothes in the closets and had nothing in the icebox. So therefore, you know, I had to reach back in my mind, 
what could I connect to to try and help to change the situation? And I thought about this little white boy that was on TV running around in, in, a, in a funny looking suit with a, a fella sticking out his funny looking hat called Robin Hood. And Robin Hood had them to pay a tariff coming through uh, Notting Hood Forest. I felt like I needed to create a tariff, too, for those people that was bringing them freight trains in to Harlem. Somebody had to go and try and rescue the people. So I took it upon myself. We started with three of my partners, and we went over there. And I remember my partners telling me, well, we're going to have fat pockets. No, man, this is not about our pockets. This is about feeding your family. You don't have no food in your house. You don't have no clothes in your house. Then we went and we started hitting the freight trains, breaking those seals and whatever we can get. I think that that time they were just starting to break out with uh, frozen foods, you know, uh, peas and carrots and that kind of thing. So we took clothes and we food. We ran across the 155th Street Bridge. Told the dude that was working on the bridge, the police going to come and ask you to open this bridge up one day to block us over there in the Bronx. Say, man, if you give us five minutes, we'll leave you something every time we go by. He said, well, I can't do that. And I kind of turned away dejected. But he said, I can give you three minutes. And I lit up <laughs> like a Christmas tree, like a light bulb. And I said, all right, man, every time we roll, we're going to bring you something. And that's how I got involved in breaking into freight trains. And, and, and believe me. As I stated earlier, my mom and dad raised us with strong morals and values and so forth like mm -hmm. that, respect the law. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't want to break the law. But then I had to come to an understanding within my heart that there was two laws. There was God's law and there was man's law. Mm -hmm. Who should I follow, mm -hmm. man's law or God's law? Well, I chose to follow God's law to see that everybody gets some of the fruit. How do you feel about the, the modern-day athlete kind of finding their voice. I mean, you know, we've had it in the past with, you know, Muhammad Ali and definitely going back to Paul Robeson, but athletes have been the, the voice for change. Um, how do you feel about that? Because it seems like there's an awakening coming on, and I think it's beautiful to see. Well, I use a metaphor for that. You know, I say a jock is not a slingshot. You know, they always want to say that the dumb jocks, you know, the athletes is just athletes, athletics, right. but they don't have no intelligence. Right. Well, I'm here to tell you that athletes for a long time, for many, many years, have really been the true intellectuals right. relative to race relations and dealing with society. Uh, you can go back as far as Paul Robeson. He was a great athlete. Mm -hmm. Marion Motley was a great athlete. You know, so when you sit back and think about Jim Brown as a great athlete, all of these athletes that I'm talking about, they dealt with the social issues of society, but they've never really received any acknowledgment. You know, we didn't ask to be Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes is Langston Hughes. Right. But yet and still, relative to dealing with the issues, I think they was equivalent to Langston Hughes in terms of being intellectualizing the certain situations relative to race relations in this country that they overlooked because they still want to use the old metaphor, these are just dumb jocks. Right. So they don't acknowledge individuals in athletics. You think about Kirk Flood. You know, when Kirk Flood did what he did, that you had to be an intellectual to think, say, I'm not a piece of property that you're going to take me and move me around, this, that, and the other. He did a tremendous thing uh, for athletics in general. In particular, he was able to uh, articulate very well to make other individuals understand that you're not a piece of property. They can't just trade you and give you away without your consent, right. which revolutionized the sport in itself. Right. But, you know, when you sit back and you think about we as black people might have heard of who, you know, Kurt Flood was. We might have heard of who Jim Brown was, but those individuals that's out there on the other side of the street, 
They know who these individuals are, mm-hmm. and they know the, how intellectual they were in their quest to make things better, but they never, ever gave them credit for being intellectuals as they were to speak on the issues throughout time. Mm. Well, I can't say enough how much respect I have for you. And, you know, you will go down in history as a pioneer, as an athlete who had the, the moral courage to stand up for what he believed in, even in the face of tremendous hate, venom, racism. I mean, that Black Power salute was a statement heard around the globe. And as I said, I have nothing but respect for you. So thank you for joining us today on the Players' Tribune. Well, thank you. Let me just say on the way out, it's a thing that's missing in society, and I would hope that this society will find it. It's a very powerful weapon, and it's called love. Right. Find the love that we had at one time on this earth, bring it back, and I think we can resolve a lot of these issues. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. John Carlos. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Much respect to you. Thank you, Thomas. I'm honored to be here with you, bro. This program was written and produced by Carl Scott and myself with talent production by Lisa Phillips. Production assistance by Sean Cherry and John McDermott. Our engineer was Chris Basil. Our executive producers are Gary Honig, Jessica Robertson, Kevin Johnston, Ryan Duffy, Chris Corcoran, and Jamie Messler. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at AtonThomas36. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Shoot me a message and let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, who'd you like to see on the show. I would love your feedback. The Players Tribune.com.